The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Special thanks to our title sponsor this season, IGS. Founded in 2013, IGS develops industry 4.0 solutions in the global ag tech and commercial lighting markets. As an industry innovator, they make revolutionary controlled environment growth products. For more information, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. I had more of a knowledge of shipping containers, and then once I learned that you could actually grow out of them, I thought it was really cool. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast. Welcome back. Episode six. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of some of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with John Friedman of Freight Farms. If you haven't listened to it, it's been getting a lot of buzz. I highly recommend you check it out. Episode five. This week, I have the privilege of speaking with Dave Riddle. He's the owner and head of operations at Clawson Greens. It's an organization that supplies Teton Valley and surrounding areas with fresh, clean greens grown year-round. Dave has an interesting path to how he became a vertical farmer. In a previous life, Dave has been a paramedic firefighter and a ski patrolman. We talk about the learning curve of vertical farming, the breakdown of his clientele, and how he's assisting his local community. I really love this conversation because Dave breaks down a typical day in the life of a vertical farmer and how he's had to be nimble in adjusting post-COVID-19. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it for you to leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. There you'll find easy instructions for how to support the show with the review, which will go a long way to letting other people know about the podcast and see that it's adding value. So let's jump into this conversation with Dave. So Dave Riddell, thank you for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks for having me. So we had a nice pre-chat about all things vertical farming, how you got into it. And I think what's been helpful for me as I've been recording some of the episodes in this series is just coming at it from a place of natural curiosity, the inspiration, which I've started to mention a couple of times. I was reading Pierre Diamandis' book, Abundance, and there was a chapter on vertical farming, which led me to Dixon de Pommier's book on vertical farming, and then starting to have great conversations with some of the founders of some of these folks in the space. And we were connected to have a chat about what you're doing with Clawson Greens. So um, for the benefit of the listener, I- I'm-, I'm wondering if you could give a, a little bit of-, of your backstory and how you sort of ended up in, in the world of uh, vertical farming. Yeah, so it's uh, kind of a long story. I kind of like to think I made a lot of good mistakes over years that kind of led me to this. And 
I've had many, many jobs over the years and kind of farming, gardening has always been kind of this little hobby. I studied communication and uh, forest recreation management up at the University of Maine. So I really got into the outdoors and became a trail builder and then moved out west here to Idaho almost 13 years ago. And uh, I started as a, a ski patroller. So that's kind of my background was doing medical work, avalanche control work and, and skiing and playing out in the mountains. And it was, you know, here in Teton Valley, Idaho, we're right on the Wyoming border and uh, it's incredibly harsh winters and they just last forever. And so we have a really harsh growing climate here. We have about 80, 85 days of actual growing. And so it's, you know, here it's a traditional conservative farming ag community. But, um, you know, for the most part, it's, it's barley, it's beer farms, it's, you know, hay, alfalfa, and potatoes. And that's pretty much all you can grow out here because it's just, you know, it snows eight, nine months out of the year. So there's always been this kind of, you know, thought of trying to figure out a way to, you know, get food in and out of this community a little easier and be able to grow a larger variety of crops. And it was about five, six years ago, I went in to work for my neighbors here who owned a small ranch in, uh, in the uh, Sierras. And that was my first time traveling through Central Valley, California. And I knew this is where, you know, the majority, about 90% of our food came from. And they were at the end of about a four, maybe even five-year drought at that point. And everything that I could see was just lush and green. But then I realized that was only where it was being irrigated. Everything else was just brown all around. The streams were dry. The rivers just had these tiny little, you know, flow. And that's when I realized, like, wait a second, this is where all of our food comes from. There's no water here. Our food system is already broken. So we're kind of like redlined, you know, at this point, how are we going to continue with, you know, we've got, what, 7 billion people in the world, like we're trying to feed all these people here. We've got 380 million people in the next 15, 20 years, we're going to be at eight, almost 9 billion people. So I was like, wait a second, we, we got to fix something. And so I would go and I was helping my neighbors on this ranch prepare their property for wildfires. And they lived up on top of this hill and we were clearing brush and setting up uh, water lines and stuff like that. And at night, we'd sit and drink beers and rocking chairs and try and figure out all these little problems and kept coming back to our little community in Teton Valley. And it was always food. And it was like, okay, well, how do we grow our own food there? Okay, when it's wintertime, the highways shut down. So our trucks in and out, we get closed off. And so there was no way of getting food in. And so I was like, okay, well, how do we do this? And my neighbor, actually, they discovered freight farms. And they were working, doing private consulting at the time for Yosemite National Park. And the park was looking at trying to figure out a way to uh, cut down on transportation costs of getting food in and out of the park. So they discovered freight farms, did this whole bid for the park, and Yosemite ended up turning them down. So then they come back and they approached me. And I was actually, at the time, I was also working with the fire department had been accepted to a paramedic program in Boston. And I was moving to Boston to become a paramedic firefighter. And they're like, hey, we know you're leaving in like two months, but we have this idea that goes back to that original problem we were trying to fix, freight farms and vertical farming. And so that's, yeah, kind of how I got into it. And long story short, I am not a paramedic firefighter. I'm a vertical farmer. So many fascinating parts about that that I feel like I want to dive deep into what goes into being ski patrol. <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. It's I, I still do it. Yeah, so I, I've, I was a, a full time professional for about nine years, and okay. then for the next three years, I still do it kind of part time. Yeah, it seems to be a thread because you mentioned the ski patrol, you mentioned the fire department, and paramedic. 
it seems like you have just a general love for the outdoors and having a job that is necessary for you to be outdoors. Is that just something that comes from your family, your upbringing? Is, is like, where, where does that come from? Yeah, I think for me, I need both a physical and that kind of mental stimulation. And I think being able like ski patrol, it's a very physical job. You're constantly out in cold climate and you're working hard. You're, you know, you know, you're constantly taking care of rope lines and helping people and hauling stuff. And it's a very physically demanding job. And then on the avalanche control work, it's working with explosives. And so there's also this really challenging, there's a, it's fun, it's exciting. And then you go from, you know, skiing to the next second, you get a call and there's somebody that needs CPR and you have to wow. immediately just transition. Mm -hmm. And then you go into that mental medical side. And it's also that kind of problem solving. And then an hour or two later, you know, that's over with. And then you go right back to, you know, figuring out these projects and, you know, doing that kind of work. So it's very similar with the fire department. You know, you're doing about 80% of the fire department is, is medical calls and it just keeps increasing these days. And so it's that physical side and also the mental challenge, which is why like also this farm is that it is very physical, but also it's kind of science mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, just problem solving. So talk to me about early days when you were approached with this. How much did you know about the industry? How much did you know about the technologies that were available? And, you know, how much of the learning did you have to do to get acquainted with what, what you were potentially going, going to set out to do? Not much. Really, it was a hobby gardener. And, you know, as a soil farmer with raised beds out here. And that was about it. I did not know anything really about. So this was 2015, 2016, when I started to get kind of into this. 2016 fall is when we started Clossing Greens. So it was a pretty steep learning curve. And it was, you know, I kind of understood. I knew that people were using shipping containers for a lot of stuff. I always thought it was pretty cool to, you know, build a house out of, you know, a lot of people out here use them as storage units and, you know, just kind of like extra, you know, facility and understanding that they can be used for all sorts of stuff. And so I had more of a knowledge of shipping containers and I knew that they could be used for all sorts of stuff. And I knew that they're just, you know, millions of them all over the world just sitting around. And so I, I had that understanding. And then once I learned that you could actually grow out of them and there was this company that was turning these containers into farms, I thought it was really cool. And so what type of research did that involve for you to learn about, you know, there's a different mindset when you're coming at it from not only as a, as a farmer in terms of learning the technology, but also learning which crops or, or what exactly you wanted to grow. So how did you go about that process? Because I, I know that a lot of people, especially in the climate that we're in, we're recording this in May 2020 in the middle of a of the covid pandemic and this idea this concept of having local access to fresh food is top of mind for a lot of people and so as, as you thought about that process of deciding what specifically you were going to focus on can you walk us through like what you were thinking and how you decided on that Sure. Well, I, I mean, to start one of these, you have to understand that it is a business and that if you want to actually do this, there has to be the idea that you want to be successful. And there really wasn't an option. Failure was not an option. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of money that you're investing. So you want to make sure that you're going into this knowing what your community needs, what, you know, those markets are, and then figuring out really what it came down to was one was figuring out what, what product takes the least amount of time to grow. Also, which takes up the least amount of space 
And then was figuring out, well, what do all of these different markets, whether that's restaurants, direct to consumer or to farmer's market or a grocer, you know, what's something that everybody is always, you know, is, is there always a demand for? And it always came back to was lettuce and greens. And so, you know, every restaurant, there's always, you know, some sort of salad that they're going to offer. Every store is always going to have greens. So it was kind of a no brainer that that was what we were going to pretty much grow. And the freight farm is known as the leafy green machine. That's what it does, you know, best with. And it was also kind of figuring out like, you can grow herbs, you can grow hearty greens, but you really got to figure out what grows the best. Because if you grow, try and grow, you know, Herbs and hardy greens in the same container, well, they use a different nutrient blend. They also like different temperatures. They like different humidity. So it's really focusing on one and really doing the best that you can with that versus growing this huge variety of things, you know. So that was really what we focused on uh, was growing a handful of different lettuces and, and hardy greens. How much did you have to educate yourself on all the different varieties in, in leafy greens? <laughs> Uh, you know, it was, you know, Fruit Farms was pretty good at kind of pointing you in that direction. But it was, you know, I mean, going to the grocery store, we've all been to the grocery stores, we know what they're serving. And I knew I didn't want to sell that. I wanted to sell something totally different. I w- and that was the cool thing. It was that, you know, you're able to go with like a seed catalog to the restaurants and the chefs can look at this catalog and say, whoa, that looks great. It's like, okay, I can grow that for you. You know, just give me eight weeks and I'll have that for you. So it was giving them this ability to kind of be able to set themselves apart from other restaurants. Even in this tiny little, you know, community that we have, restaurants are able to kind of set themselves apart and serve, you know, different varieties of lettuce, you know, on their menu, which is, you know, a great opportunity for for both sides. It gives me the ability to sell something that the grocery store and the large, you know, commercial farms that, you know, truck all of their produce in can't offer. You know, it's just like red leaf, green leaf, spinach, and, and there you go. So we knew that we didn't want to grow that. How much of it is an education also then for the restaurants and the the grocery stores? So maybe just to back up a bit, who is the, the primary clientele and, and what is the percentage or the split between restaurants and grocers? Two months ago was 100% restaurants. <laughs> so, and so that's, you know, and I've done, I've done winter CSAs, which was a community supported agriculture. And that was something that nobody else could offer. There's a lot of community supported agriculture in the summertime with our uh, local organic farms. The thing was, is that in a small community, I never really wanted to compete with those other growers because it's a very challenging, it's very challenging being a outside soil farmer here in Teton Valley. And so they have limited markets. And so that was never really our goal to compete with them. It was always trying to figure out where there was an opening in the markets that they were unable to actually supply to. And that was winter. And a lot of it was restaurants. So we knew that going into the restaurants were our kind of main focus. Direct to consumer was another goal goal of ours. The restaurants was pretty easy because they want the freshest, best looking product. And with a menu, they're able to hide the price of a more expensive product very easily. So if say, you know, I up my price by 25 cents, you know, at the beginning of, you know, their spring menu, they're able to put that in, you know, very easily. If somebody goes into a restaurant and they're going to get a salad, whether the salad is $10 or $10 and 25 cents, they're not going to walk out. They're going to buy the salad. 
So when, when you're at a restaurant, you're looking at a menu, you're not like, you know, pricing everything. You, you do make those decisions. But when you're at a grocery store, you have all of these options in front of you. And you can make that choice of like, oh, this one's $3, this one's $6. I'm going to go with the one in the middle at, you know, four fifty here. So that was kind of hard. And we kind of knew that people were going to be, you know, they're a little bit more, you know, able to spend less money. And they are, you know, you know, that's their goal is to, you know, spend as little money as possible. Whereas a restaurant, they want the best product. And so we knew we were able to sell our product for more at a restaurant. So you said as of two months ago, it was 100% restaurant. So now how's that, how's that changed now? We've got, so a couple restaurants did stay open and they kind of did to go. It's really hard that, you know, a salad is not the biggest seller on the to-go menu. So it was kind of hard. So the majority of the restaurants, uh, in, literally in two days, uh, I said I have uh, about 50% of my restaurants are in Wyoming, 50% are here in Idaho. And it was in two days, both Idaho and Wyoming shut down the whole restaurant bar kind of scene. So in two days, I lost 100% of my clients. Wow. Um, that was hard. Um, but we were able to then just transition. What have you done since then to transition? So since then, you know, because we had all this product and it was figuring out, okay, well, you know, people don't want to go to the grocery store. You know, that's like the last thing. People don't want to put masks on. They don't want to put themselves into these areas. And the grocery store is literally probably your best chance if you're going to like catch COVID, it's going to be in a grocery store somewhere or some sort because there's all these people there. People don't wear masks. Some do. People are touching things. And so people really didn't want to go to the store. And so we kind of had this idea of like, why don't we start a little farm stand and we can just kind of reach out to the people that were a part of our CSA in the past and we can use, you know, Instagram and Facebook and just kind of put it out there to people and just advertise that, you know, we're going to, you know, just offer this up and it's going to be a drive up. And so we just kind of put tables out and we met, made uh, pre-made bags. It was just kept it easy. It was like $10 and a $20 bag. And people would just kind of show up and they'd stay in their car. And, you know, we just had, uh, we use like Venmo as, you know, we just had a whiteboard, you know, the information. So people would come up and say, I'll take two bags and say, here you go. That'll be, you know, $20. And so they would just, you know, pay right on their phone. We'd hand it to them or put in like, you know, the open window. And then another farmer from up the street and they, uh, they grow mushrooms, indoor mushrooms. They're really fantastic. And so we kind of teamed up. And so you could come and buy mushrooms and you could buy lettuce from us. And so it was great. We did that for a little while. And then here is like, you know, just about anywhere else in the country, the food banks are completely overwhelmed. And so it was trying to figure out, okay, well, we have these people that want to buy from us, but you know, our community that was already, you know, having a hard time, these people just, they need food. And so somebody from the food bank actually reached out to me and they said, Hey, we've got some people that have been asking how they can make donations to the food bank. And we thought that it would be a good idea if we had them make a donation to you and then you just donate your food, your greens to the food bank. And so that's actually now what I've transitioned to doing. So it's a way for the community to help out the food bank. They can make donations and it's also helping growers like myself stay in business during this time. And at the same time, we're helping out, you know, our community that really needs it. So it's been a great option. It's so fascinating, this idea of the drive-through, because typically, you know, as anyone who's grown up here in the States, they think of McDonald's drive-through, right? <laughs> Which is the, the worst possible, like, uh, non-nutrition. But it's so funny to turn it on its head and say, hey, we're going to keep that same model, but do it for good and, and, and for stuff that's... This is a healthy drive-through. That's, that's, a, that's a beautiful pivot. What did you learn about yourself in terms of how you had to respond as a, as a business owner and figure out quickly, like... 
if I don't figure something out, I'm out of business. Yeah, yeah, it happened really quick. And I think that that's been one of the big issues for our large scale agriculture is that why you've, you've read these stories about dairy farms dumping milk or large farms, you know, plowing all of their crops, which are perfectly good, is that the system, the, the infrastructure that they have is not set up to feed individuals and supermarkets. They're set up to supply large chains and schools and these, you know, they don't have the ability to just on, you know, switch over to small scale. And so that was the thing. They're like, well, we're going to lose all of this because we don't have the ability to spend all this money to completely change our packaging. And so that was where I think that there's a benefit for small farms like myself and all over the country, whether that's, you know, indoor farming or just small scale farming in a community, is we have the ability to transition, you know, in a day or two from restaurants to a direct-to-consumer, to the drive-up, whether that's working with the food banks, whereas these large-scale systems that have all of these moving parts, they just don't have that ability. And so that's why they're literally pouring their product down the drain or they're plowing perfectly good food. Yeah, I heard that they even had to slaughter a bunch of chickens for, for, for the eggs. Yeah, the egg. exactly. The, their, their systems are not set up for it. And I think that this, is, this pandemic is really showing both our weaknesses and our strengths. And it's really kind of showing, you know, what is valuable and where we need to make changes. And that's how, like, we have all of this farmland. We have these massive growers. And it's really hard because they can't get the food out to us because of just their system that's in place. And so that's, that's the challenge. It's like, okay, well, if we continue to put, you know, this focus on big ag in times like this, it doesn't work for, you know, the average person. It doesn't work for the grocery store. We have all of the food. We can't get it to us. Have you thought about changing the, the mix of the products you offer? Because if, if you were traditionally restaurants and probably higher end restaurants who who can actually sell on their menu, like the benefits of, you know, having a bib versus a, a like a butterhead or, <laughs> you know, the varieties of romaine that you cover. And that's that looks sexy on a menu. But when you, you know, when it now now on a, for a food bank, though, you, you don't have to be as discerning. So I'm wondering if, if how that's changed for you. You know, from that sense, you know, I still take the same pride in, you know, providing a, a, a beautiful, you know, head of lettuce, whether it's going to the restaurant or if it's going to the food bank. So there wasn't much of a change. It's that we don't have to focus on, well, what are they going to pair this with or how is this going to be presented kind of thing. And so and that was with a lot of like we did like specialty greens, which was like wasabi arugula and red vein sorrel or, or rainbow Swiss chard, things like that. And, you know, we just gave it right to, to the food bank. And it was kind of like, you know, if you've never had wasabi arugula and you get it in this package and, and you take a bite of it, it's, <laughs> what is, where did that come from? Whereas a, at yeah. a restaurant, you know, they would have this, you know, elaborate kind of write up on exactly what the flavor, you know, contrast will be with this. So there wasn't that kind of focus for us. It was just kind of get the food out to them. Can you talk a little bit about the day-to-day? Because -day? I'm fascinated about what like a day in the life looks like for Dave. And maybe, you know, there may have been what a day in life, you know, six weeks ago and what a day in the life looks like now. So I'd be interested in, in, in walking, you walking us through that. Sure. You know, mid midwinter, we were harvesting. So I have three, three of these containers. And so each container, we harvest about a thousand heads a week per container. So on a good week, we're, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 heads of lettuce a week. And 
it just snows constantly. So it starts very early in the morning of going out and doing snow removal, of plowing and snow blowing and shoveling so that I can get my employees in and I can get my van out. And so there's just all these challenges. And then it's, okay, we need water. All right, I need to set up the heated hoses. I need to get all of this going. And so just to start the day, it's get a quick breakfast, you know, up probably 536, get going, coffee, out the door, start working, and then get people in by about 7.30, 8 o'clock. And then we're just harvesting and getting all, you know, the restaurants lined up, exactly what restaurant needs what. And it's nice because I can just, you know, on I can just build a real quick spreadsheet and say, this restaurant wants this and just put it out on the board and they come in, they can just look and see, okay, this restaurant's getting this, this restaurant gets this, and they put them in the bags. The biggest challenge between winter and summer is is driving. And so I have some some large restaurants in, in Wyoming. Well, the thing is, is that we have Teton Pass separates Idaho and Wyoming, which goes up to about 8,400 feet. It averages about 400 inches of snow a year. It's one of the more challenging stretches of road in the country, and that is my delivery route. And it's constantly getting closed because of avalanches that come across the road. So sometimes the highway is just totally shut down. So I've then got to figure out, I have this drive around that adds about four hours to my delivery. It's tough when you're sitting on like $1,000 worth of greens in your van and you're sitting and they just close the highway. You're like, well, I don't have an option. I've got to, again, back to that, there's no failure here. We got to figure out a way. It's driving. So some days, you know, are really long. Other days, not so bad. So uh, that was kind of through the winter. And then with, you know, COVID hit and there was kind of this really interesting time of, well, what does that mean? And it was, okay, well, what restaurants are going to stay open? Who's going to close? And then all of a sudden, the states just came down and said, we're closing. It literally overnight just, it kind of changed everything for us. And so then it just kind of went to figuring out, well, we've got all this, you know, produce. What do we do with it? Who needs it? How can we get it out? And that was, well, we've got neighbors here. We've got people that want to help. Let's, let's do this. Let's just make a couple posts and uh, a few emails and boom, we were in business. So that was nice. Can you talk a little bit about the, the team, how big the operation is, and also the ability to keep folks employed, which I, I imagine was top of mind for you as well? So for the most part, this past winter is myself and one other person. I have one, one other employee. So that was, it was pretty challenging. Uh, it was about 50, 60 hours a week for me with the deliveries and running the business. It was challenging and then having a part-time employee that was probably about 20, almost 30 hours a week. It's really hard to be able to offer a full-time job. I just don't have the hours for it, which was hard. And so it's kind of hard keeping people in that position because I can't fault them if they find another full-time job and I get it. And, and I mean, I've had employees that, I mean, you know, my current employee right now has, uh, has her master's in geology and it's like, well, what, what exactly, you know, are you going to do? And she works on this farm and she works on another farm. And so we have, you know, people from brewers to, you know, geologists to uh, a former director of a hospital. And these are all like, you know, part-time employees that just come and they really love the work and they just wanted to kind of help out. So it's a real interesting team that I've had over the past couple of years. And it does. And I kind of like that. I, I do get all sorts of different people throughout the years. So that's kind of how the team works. And yeah, they get a lot of lettuce and <laughs> I pay them a living wage and they're, they're pretty happy coming. And they uh, work in, in a container, they harvest lettuce and they listen to music and podcasts. So it's, uh, it's not bad. 
How did you think about the uh, the, the placement? Because you said you have three containers. Are they all geographically located in the same place? Or was there an idea of how to place them strategically closer to, to where they're they're needed? They're all in my backyard. Okay. <laughs> so they're all, I have, a, I have a barn and I attach them all to the barn. So I have a shed that I connected to the barn and these walkways that then go to the, uh, to the containers themselves. For these, it was from day one, we knew that we wanted to have these on site. One, I already own my land and my house here, so I don't have to pay for a commercial piece of property. So that was huge. And I know that is a challenge for a lot of people, especially in an urban environment, is that people don't have the ability to just put these things right in their backyard and have the infrastructure already set up. I was able, I, you know, went out and rented an excavator and did a bunch of land work and, you know, dug water lines and trenched out for electrical and was able to do all that on my own, where I know a lot of people that live in, you know, in a city, they don't have that ability and they just have to use the land that they can find and they've got to pay a lot of money for that. So yeah, from the beginning, we knew that we wanted to start with one container and that it was always going to grow to, you know, multiple containers. That was always the plan. And do you distribute the varieties evenly across the, the three containers or do you have like one container specifically for one variety? We're geeking out on the specifics of it, but it's, it's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the ability. So the, the concept that I had from, from day one was to kind of make our own spring mix. And that's what people want when they have, you know, a salad restaurant, they kind of give them these options. And so I knew that I wanted to be able to, every time I'm harvesting, I'm bringing people four or five, six types of lettuce, and they can then choose and make their own mix. So one of the containers, I might have more of one thing, or I might use that as like, I'm going to grow a lot of rainbow Swiss chard because it takes up more room. So I'm just going to use this one, but I really try and spread everything out. So at any given time, I can always access every variety of crop that I'm growing. So I always have that ability. There's always, if somebody wants more of something, I always have that. And that was kind of the ability. It's also that, that idea of customization for, for the chefs and the restaurants is that they always have something that they wanted. And there's also been a lot of kind of playing with different things and figuring out what, what germinates the best. And that was the other thing is that a lot of times, you know, a chef would be like, I really want this and I'd try it. And it might look okay. It could taste like crap. It just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't like, you know, the humidity. And so there's a lot of trial and error. Over time, what I've, I've really kind of narrowed it down to about eight or nine lettuces that work every single time. Their germination is like 98% and higher. And it's just easy. And I just know. And it's also cost of seeds. So it's figuring out your cost of seeds, your germination rates, and what the restaurant is going to want every single time. Are you connected with a community of other container farmers and, and do you share stories, best practices? Yeah, there's there's one other large indoor hydroponic farms, not here in Teton Valley, but over in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And uh, they're called Vertical Harvest. And they've worked with the state and, and the city. They've got all these grants and they have this huge, it's a three-story facility on the side of um, a parking garage. And they use actual, they use LED lights like I do, but they also have, it's all glass on the south side of the building. So they're also able to use natural light. It's a really cool setup that they have. And we're in, you know, we, we talk, but it was when I was going through the business model and like we had figured everything out and we had just finalized everything with the bank. 
And I literally made the purchase with Freight Farms. A friend of mine sent me an article about vertical harvest. I'm like, isn't this what you're doing? I was like, oh, man. (laughs) Like, there goes the business. But the thing is, is that they're very limited. They can grow a lot, but there's just so many restaurants. There's so much demand that immediately we realize that there's, we're not, that's not our competition. And, you know, they're just, you know, they're kind of in the same boat as us. So it's, you know, what's good for us is good for them. You know, our competition was more, you know, what's going on in California and transportation and water shortages and all of that. That's really, you know, climate change. That's, that's our competition. And so that's what we kind of figured out. And there is, there's a very supportive group here in, in Teton Valley. There are a lot of small farmers, not many indoor farmers, more Indu Mushrooms, which is a mushroom farm right up the street from me. They're an indoor mushroom farm. And, you know, we were the ones who started, you know, our little drive-through farm stand. We sell to a lot of the same restaurants. A lot of times if I pick up a new restaurant, you know, I'd say, hey, you know, if you want great mushrooms, I know a person that's right up the street and they love it. And so we, you know, help each other out. And so it's been great. That's great. And what have you learned? Because I, I think as a consumer, you know, we have tastes that we grew up with and for most people it's typically iceberg lettuce with maybe some romaine and then as your palate continues to evolve then you appreciate the differences but even just seeing like what you have on the on the menu like specific varieties you have you have bambi bib salanova butterhead cherokee summer crisp chuchas romaine and rainbow swiss chard so how what, what it, they, they all have different, they have different textures, different tastes, different profile. Yeah, they look totally different. And that's, that was the goal is that, you know, when you put them together, you have all of these different types of greens all in one plate and it looks great and it tastes great. And so I think that that's like, when you're saying like, oh, do chefs understand and, you know, and can people tell the difference? And it's a absolute 100% yes, because people are used to just your standard, you know, romaine, iceberg, green leaf, red leaf, you know, that's about it. And then when you look at, you know, these Salanovas that look like absolutely nothing, they're like, what is this? And you taste it. It's like, wow, that tastes fantastic. And it's like, yeah, well, that was because it was grown and harvested literally today. And then was put on your plate. It didn't take 10 days to get to that restaurant or to get to, you know, your table. And so, yeah, that was kind of the ability when you're just looking at it. And it's a selling point for both me and it's a selling point for the restaurant because they're able to put that on their menu. And that's one of their biggest selling points. So this, this current wave that we're in is, is not going to continue forever. And, and there is a some point where we see that some sense of, you know, I don't know that there's ever going to be a, a normal, we're probably what we consider a new normal. So I'm wondering, as you think about marketing, if you could talk a little about that, you know, you, you, pro- you had a marketing plan in place and how you were offering up the services and, and educating restaurants. And so can you talk about what you are planning to do from a marketing perspective as places start to open up to ensure that you get the word out about, uh, about Clawson? Yeah. I mean, I'm still going to go, you know, the majority of the restaurants that I was selling at are going to go back and, and continue to buy from Clawson Greens. It's, really figuring out, well, how much are they going to be buying? Because, you know, you said, you know, normal after, you know, all of this, whenever that is, we don't actually know. That's not going to be, you know, we have no idea what normal actually is going to be. 
So is that, you know, 50% capacity? Is that 25% capacity? I, I don't quite know. So I'm still want and will continue to supply to all these restaurants, you know, because they're, they need to stay in business, you know, just like me, like they, you know, they have families, they need to, you know, take care of everybody, they need to stay, you know, open. So I'm obviously going to be working with them. It's then figuring out, like I was saying, during this whole time, I think we figured out our strengths and our weaknesses. And I think that the strengths of a business like mine were able to find all these different markets and whether that is that direct to consumer. And I really do like the direct to consumer route. It's easier because for me, I can make more money doing it because if I were to sell everything to the local grocery store, well, they have to then mark it up. And it's usually a 40, almost 50% markup. So for me, I'd have to sell it to them for less and I've done it before and it was tough because then, you know, I had to sell it. You know, I couldn't sell for anything less. I had to sell for what I, you know, could. And I got to the grocery store and I saw what they were, you know, selling for. I was like, whoa, that's expensive. I don't, I mean, I like my lettuce, but I don't know if I'd spend that, you know. And so it's, it's a little easier for people to just say, oh, I'm going to spend $10 on this. And this is going to feed, you know, myself and family for, you know, X amount of days. And if I want more, I'm going to buy a larger bag kind of thing. And they also know that they're supporting a local business. And I think that that's the great thing about it is that people, when they come in and they, and they sit down at a restaurant, they look on the menu and they see a local product. They want to support that local you know, farm or they want to you know, support the local rancher where, where that meat came from. And they make that connection. And whether that's, you know, they sit down like, oh, I, I know Clausen Greens. I know Dave. Like I read about it, you know, in, in an article. I want to support them. And they make that connection. And they're more willing to spend an extra dollar, extra $2 on it. And so there's that advertising for both me and there's also advertising for the restaurant. So having your name on the menu is a great way for both consumer and for also the grower. Well, it's interesting what you were saying about this idea of community because, you know, I've seen this in, in you know, helping folks in the podcasting space and, and new services, even the, even the tool that we're using right now, Squadcast, um, I, I've been helping, I'm an advisor to the company. And what I told the guys early on is like, people buy from other people. So the sooner they can establish like a face recognition or name recognition, because to your point, it's Dave from Clawson Greens that they have a relationship with. And I think it goes a long way towards showing that you are a, a member of the community, you're not a faceless entity. And when people buy from you, there's this sense that they're supporting a local cause as well. So I, I feel like that, that goes a long way to, to deepening the relationships you're having with your customers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a restaurant doesn't put, you know, on their menu, you know, Cisco salad or a U.S. foods steak, you know, there's no point. Like nobody's going to make a connection. They don't know who Mr. Cisco is. But, you know, when they're able to say, oh, well, this is Clawson Greens from, you know, Tetonia or Morning Dew Mushrooms from Tetonia or, you know, HD Dunn Beef, you know, which is in Driggs. And so it's, you know, people make this connection. And especially for tourists, when they come here, they want that connection. They, they traveled, you know, long distance to this town and they want to be a part of, you know, this community. And that's kind of their way is supporting, you know, whether they're going to local shops or they're buying from, you know, the, uh, the markets or they're, you know, supporting the growers that are on the menus. And so there's, I mean, there's, there's plenty of research out there that people are willing to spend more money and support the local uh, community. And so 
that's what we have. And that's why I think, you know, the ability of these small businesses and from ranchers, growers, you know, that there is uh, there is a future, even with, you know, what's going on with this whole pandemic that people want to help people want to support. So, Dave, as you think about like what you had in mind for what this business would be when you got started and what you've experienced and obviously even how you've had to shift what have you learned about yourself that maybe you didn't know coming in would be something that would would be a change for you? Sure. I think I kind of have always, you know, I've loved the education side and whether that was, you know, ski patrolling, you know, there's always this element of education because there's a lot of times that people would come, you know, from, you know, all over the country or world and they come into these mountains and it is pretty daunting and they're kind of looking around, you know, eyes wide open of like, whoa, what did I get myself into? And you've got to be able to kind of communicate with people and kind of let them know like what's going on, where, you know, why they're here, what this is all about and how to be safe. And so I think that I've been able to also kind of bring that education into, you know, growing. And so we've been working with Full Circle Education, which is a nonprofit here in our community. And it works with the local schools and it brings school groups to different farms and they take field trips and they come here. And it's, you know, people or you know, these kids, these fourth, fifth, sixth graders, they come here and for some kids, you know, that just don't understand where food comes from. And a lot of people still think your food just comes from the grocery store and they don't have that, you know, connection of, oh, there's actually farmers. Oh, there's people that, you know, grow this food. Then it goes to the, to the grocery store. And the cool thing is that, you know, it's not this traditional where, you know, oh, your farmer is this old guy in overalls. And it's that there's, you know, young people like myself that have all sorts of different backgrounds and we're using technology. And I think that's really one of the cool things is that getting into this, I knew that there was going to constantly be these advances. And that was the exciting thing about it is that on day one versus, you know, five years down the road, there's so many other options that container farms, urban farming, hydroponic farming, all of these different options are going to be able to kind of change as needs change, whether that's, you know, land space that we just don't have anymore or water and we have less things available to us, we have to make more with less. And I think that that's what's great about what I'm doing and being able to educate that to younger people and have that kind of, you know, grow up. And so they understand that there's a difference and that there are other options and kids love technology as well. And when you open up one of these containers and all the lights are on, it's still cool four or five years later that I've been doing this. I'm still in awe when I go in, I'm like, wow, this is what I do. This is, this is impressive. Uh, yeah, it's really inspiring. So one of the questions I like to ask as, as we as we wrap up is what's something you've changed your mind about recently? I think in the last couple of weeks, I mean, up is down, down is up. And I think that it's, again, figuring out, you know, where our strengths are. And I think we, we've kind of seen where a lot of our weaknesses are, but I think there's a lot of time that we can figure out what our strengths. And I think it comes down to community. And I think that that's probably one of the strongest things that I've seen in this tiny little town is that, you know, everything is from schools are shut down to all these businesses, but, you know, people still remain, you know, confident and they seem pretty upbeat. And the amount of just outpour to all of our local businesses has been fantastic. And I think I've really learned that if you try and you put yourself out there to help out the community, they're going to respond. 
And I think that that's what I've really seen in a lot of people have also, whether that's the restaurants, working with the restaurants or other growers, you know, there's just been amazing feedback. And I'm confident that kind of moving forward that this isn't just going to go away. You know, there's still going to be this connection that people just don't kind of give up on, you know, and because we don't quite know what normal is going to be like in, you know, months from now or six or, you know, a year from now. But I think as we continue to make connections and kind of put yourself out there and, you know, just be a face, whether that's, you know, being a farmer or being an artist or whatever that be, you know, people are going to respond to it. Well, that's truly an inspiring story. And I was really grateful that we've been connected and to allow you to tell the story of what's happening on the ground because you know you hear a lot of like what these bigger farms are doing but to have a conversation with someone who is working on this day to day getting up early you know figuring out what what's the challenge for the day is really inspiring and the fact that you've been able to to pivot through the current crisis i think is going to make you more resilient as a business owner uh, especially in this industry that's still growing so as we wrap up um, what what's something that you're excited about when it comes to the vertical farming industry itself i think it's efficiencies and technology i think that it's just every every year that's you know it, it continues to grow and i think there's more and more people out there that are kind of you know starting to come around and figure out this is this is a really amazing technology and there's ways to make it even better and you know figuring out whether that's you know new types of lighting new nutrients being able to do more and less and more efficiently and that's what I really love about it. And that's why, you know, when I said from day one, I knew that in five years, I was going to have no idea what I was going to be doing. And that's the exciting thing is that it constantly is changing. Well, that's great. So uh, where's the best place for folks to get connected with you and to learn more about Claussen Greens? ClaussenGreens.com we have. I, I check that every once in a while. Instagram and Facebook is a, a great way or Dave at com. If you ever just want to shoot me an email, I'm happy to chat. Yeah, if I ever make my way to that part of the country, I'll, you'll have to give me a tour as well. <laughs> Absolutely, be happy to. Thanks again for your time, Dave. I really appreciate you sharing the, your story with my audience. Happy to be here. Thanks. So thanks again to Dave Riddell. I really appreciate the story of how he became a vertical farmer. And I think differently from some of the earlier episodes, it really paints a picture of the different ways you can arrive in the vertical farming industry and the different paths that you can take. And Dave sharing his background as a ski patrolman and paramedic firefighter, I think really humanizes him and really paints a great picture of of how passionate he is about this industry, which is why I loved the ability to tell his story. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. As always, special thanks to our season one sponsor, Intelligent Growth Solutions. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. If your company would like to understand how a podcast can help your brand, sign up for a free call at fullcast.co forward slash chat one five. Make sure you tune in next week for my conversation with Nicola Kerslake. She's the founder of Contain. Most in the vertical farming industry will be familiar with Contain, but if you're not, their platform connects the people who make indoor growing happen. They've got a unique program that supports leasing and insurance programs for vertical farming projects. And Nicola is a fantastic guest with a lot of energy and enthusiasm for the industry. So I really enjoyed that conversation. I can't wait to share that one with you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Vertical Farming Podcast. Here's to your health. 
Thanks for listening. To hear all past episodes and read the episode summaries, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.